0: We're continuing this morning hearing Jesus' call to discipleship from the Sermon on the Mount from the Gospel lesson just read in Matthew chapter 6. Having finished the Lord's Prayer, what is before us reflects how Jesus thinks we should order our lives and our priorities in light of the prayer. Right? There's a tendency in when one reads the Sermon on the Mount to just think, oh, here's a little bit of ethical teaching And here's another little bit of ethical teaching, and here's another little bit. But there's a structure and an order to it, right? As Matthew's put it together, it's a kind of sermon that flows. So Jesus finishes teaching on how to pray, and then he says, okay, now I want to talk to you a little bit about treasure. Because to pray, right, to pray is to orient oneself to our Father in heaven, and thus to cultivate a heavenly disposition towards stuff, towards treasure, So he moves from the prayer to this little section of text that we're looking at this morning. We are here on the question of money and treasure. We are are at something which lies at the center of Jesus' ethical teaching. This is a, a heartfelt passion of his. If you want to grasp something of how important this material is to Jesus, consider this. The Sermon on the Mount as we've said is the heart it's the sum of his ethical teaching. In this section of the sermon Jesus uses related words for reward or money or treasure 10 times. 10 times in about 20 verses. So it should be no surprise I think we all know that when it comes to money and wealth Jesus is ruthless. Surely you've recognized this. He is consistently demanding, challenging, and fierce. He is not getting a regular gig on CNBC or the Fox Business Channel. He's not going to show up there and say the things that you expect someone to say when they talk about money and economics. He would agree With Calvin, who said that it is a major plague, which we find rampant amongst mankind, that they have a mad and insatiable desire for possessions. So Jesus is, hopefully this is stating the obvious, he is without question an enemy of our materialist, consumerist, wealth-obsessed culture. According to uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish philosopher, he, he says that when Jesus speaks on earthly treasures, Kierkegaard says, quote, He assaulted the whole human race at the point where that race is the most sensitive, namely its desire for security. And we will see Jesus doing that again here. This is a tough bit of teaching. And it's easy, I suppose, to put someone else in the crosshairs. (laughs) right? To criticize, perhaps, I don't know, the, the preachers of the prosperity gospel. But I think to think that we as Americans, embedded in the richest country in the world, are somehow unscathed by all this, would be a grave mistake. Because the gospel of peace and prosperity has infected us all. Which is why Jesus' teaching on wealth gets what about it? Well, what about this? And what about that? And what about that? It gets what about it as much as his teaching on non retaliatory suffering love. Which is to say, largely, it gets ignored or explained away. So, again, as a matter of first importance, right, we have to let ourselves. This is, I think, one of the great functions of the Sermon on the Mount, right? We have to let ourselves, not others, but our cherished presuppositions, right? Our cherished institutions. The things we think are obviously true. Right? We have to let those things be scrutinized and criticized. Criticized. Anyone can let stuff that they hold very lightly and it doesn't mean that much to them, that's on the fringes of their existence, anyone can subject that to scrutiny. The sermon's taking you and the stuff that you love and sticking it under the light of Christ. And if we don't do this, right, we risk becoming stagnant. Stagnant at best, idolaters at worst. So, in this text today, which is Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24, Jesus says the same thing three different ways. He just uses three different metaphors. So, we're going to make three points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. A single treasure, a single eye, a single master. So, first, a single treasure. He starts with a prohibition. Verse 19. We're told not to store up treasures for ourselves on earth. And and the force of the text is stop. The 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 imperative here is stop storing up treasures for yourselves. He assumes this is your natural inclination. He assumes it's going on. He demands that it stop immediately. Notice the text says to store up, that is, to amass and to hold for yourselves on earth treasure. Not not amassing treasure for God's work or his kingdom or for the poor, but for yourselves. So certainly, minimally, the text condemns amassing selfish treasure, but that is not the main point of the text. We'll see that. The point of the text is not, well, you can have plenty of earthly treasure as long as you're generous with some of it for God's work. right? Because the second part of the text will say, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Don't lay up for yourself treasure on earth. Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. So for yourselves just means you're the agent laying up the treasure. What's actually happening in the text, and this is the hard part for us to listen to, is that Jesus forbids earthly treasures? Period. The text could not be clearer. It's difficult for us to read it, but the text cannot be clearer. One may have assets, one may have things they enjoy, one may have possessions, but one can have no treasure on earth, according to Jesus. This is why Paul can say, let those who buy and sell be as if they did not buy and sell. So how much treasure on earth does Jesus expect us to have in the text? Zero. None. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Is not reduce your treasures on earth. Or hold your treasures on earth lightly. It's don't have any. It's right there in the text, in black and white. Stop. Immediately, it is prohibited. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Your spouse can't be a treasure. Your children can't be a treasure. Your house can't be a treasure. Your lands can't be a treasure. The church can't be a treasure. Your ministry can't be a treasure. Your retirement account can't be a treasure. Do not lay up treasure on earth. People who do it Jesus will say in another place, are like the rich fool who builds the big barns and says, look, I've got enough for retirement. And God calls that man a fool. Says that very night his soul's going to be required of him. He should have used his wealth toward God. He wasn't rich toward God. Further, Jesus says that treasures on earth are irrational. They're not even wise. They're not even sane. But right? you have to lack a fundamental eternal perspective to do it. Notice the whole verse. The whole verse. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Why? Because moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. So think of the ancient world as a world without banks. And so treasure would consist like in hard currency or material assets. And often you'd have to hide it, either in the home or in some supposedly safe place. But this this type of treasure is subject to being consumed by moths or vermin. Or possibly, if it was a metal, by rusting away. And it would have been relatively easy for the stuff to be stolen by thieves. So today, in addition to theft... And the deterioration of your assets, we can lose them by inflation, we can lose them by market fluctuation, we're all gonna lose them all by dying. Wealth in any age, Proverbs says, has a way of making wings and flying away. The point is treasures on earth are not durable, they are not secure. If you want a genuinely safe and durable investment, we're going to have to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, Jesus says. And, of course, by treasure, he's moving beyond just purely material or purely monetary. He he means everything that would benefit you after death. Your character, deeds of love, mercy, almsgiving, the kingdom-centered use of your wealth. What are the things in the Sermon on the Mount? that Jesus has already said and specifically described as accumulating for us rewards in heaven? Well, suffering persecution, bearing with slander, loving one's enemies, generosity to the poor, fervent and sincere prayer, humble fasting. Jesus has already told us, these things lay up treasure for you. So in short, the whole of the Christian life, not a section of it, right, the whole thing, is to be a laying up of treasure in heaven. Laying up of treasure in heaven is not a portion of the Christian life. It is what the Christian life is. Listen to Calvin again here. He says this, Those who lay up treasures in heaven are those who rid themselves of earth's entanglements and direct their concern and zeal to consider the life of heaven. So there has to be a ridding of a kind of entanglement and a directing of one's zeal to the very life of heaven itself. So, now notice this. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, but, Jesus says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. So there's a stark contrast, right, an antithesis. Stop doing the one, do the other. So, let me be clear, because we have a tendency to want to avoid this. Or evade it. Jesus does not think you can have treasure on earth and treasure in heaven. He does not think this is a both and situation. He does not say the stuff we say. Have you guys noticed that in the Sermon on the Mount? Like nobody says these things. Even Christians don't say these things. And there they are. Jesus says them right in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't say, you know, as long as you use 10% of your earthly stuff for my kingdom, go ahead and keep amassing it. He says, rather, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So a man can store and amass treasure, the Lord says, in only one place. You cannot have some treasure on earth and some treasure in heaven. All of it is deployed for the kingdom of heaven. Yes, again, just to be clear, of course, we have to have earthly things and assets. But we're to have no earthly treasures, according to Jesus. Our treasure is to be in heaven, period, no remainder. Now, if you think I'm overselling this or overstating what Jesus requires here, here's the Luke parallel of this text. When he says this exact same thing in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke, here's what he says. Sell your possessions and give to the poor and provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. So in Luke, it's plain, right? Your treasure's to be in heaven, period. If you have to sell your possessions to do so, sell them. If you have to reduce your portfolio to do so, reduce it. It shouldn't be strange to us, but it is. The whole New Testament orients us this way. The New Testament says that our reward is in heaven. Our inheritance is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our hope is anchored in heaven. Our affections are in heaven. We inwardly groan for heaven. In short, our Jesus is in heaven. And you too, already by faith through the Spirit, are raised up into heaven itself to participate in God. That's what that meal is. God who is himself our blessedness and reward. Where else would your treasure be exactly? We agree with the psalmist. We heard this in our, our new monthly psalm that we just sang. Whom have I in heaven? Psalm 73... But thee. And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart they will fail, but God is my portion forevermore. And besides this, Jesus is making a very practical point. The earthly stuff is unsafe and it will be lost, the heavenly stuff is safe and it will never be lost. So he summarizes why we need to do this, why we need to stop amassing one form of treasure and start amassing another form of treasure. Here's what he says. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is an extraordinary... Now, we've all heard it. I know it's very familiar, but it's an extraordinarily powerful, like, diagnostic proverb. Where your treasure is there your heart will be also. I would suggest we would tend to naturally reverse it. We would say, wherever your heart is, there you'll find your treasure. And there's a lot of truth to that as well. But Jesus reverses the order here because he does not want to leave us an out that we're susceptible of taking. So that we don't get to say, you know, the real me is who I am in my heart. But don't worry about my assets or my treasure. I mean, I've got all this stuff, but my heart's really in heaven. Yeah, there's all this treasure. I'll walk you around my house and point it out to you. But Jesus is really my true heart's treasure. I know it looks like with my actual treasures that I'm pursuing the American dream, but I can assure you I'm not. Jesus insists that the heart follows one's treasure. Like, wherever the assets are, that's where your heart is. So notice it's a place, too. Right? Where? Where you reckon your highest goods to be, there you are tied and fixed. Think about that. You are either fastened to heaven or fastened to earth. Jesus does not think you can be fastened in both places. Show me, he is saying, What realm or what place your time and your talents and your assets are deployed for, right? What we cherish, what we protect, what we sacrifice for, what we invest in. What losses grieve us, what gains we rejoice in. Show me that place, that realm, and there, that is where your heart is. And it's a binary choice. It's stark and it's unmixed, heaven or earth. So that's a single treasure. Jesus makes the point again when he speaks of a single eye. Verse 22, he contrasts these two types of seeing. So now he's doing the same thing. He's just doing it in a simpler form. The eye is a metaphor for your heart, the center of our being. On the one hand, we have a healthy eye, which means a sound eye, an eye singularly focused on the kingdom, and thus a generous eye. This sort of eye, Jesus says, means that our lives and our bodies are full of light. The other type of eye here he calls unhealthy. It's a stingy, envious, greedy, selfish eye. And this type of person, he says, is filled with darkness. Now again, again, in the context of what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount, the point is clear. One type of eye seeks to amass treasures in heaven. The other type of eye seeks to amass treasures on earth. One type of eye sees the invisible God dwelling in the highest heavens, the realm of the eternal. The other eye is transfixed on the passing realm of the visible and temporal. Kierkegaard, I already mentioned, has a famous saying where he says, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. We're all divided and scattered and disintegrated in our hearts and our cultures, you know, pinging around... (laughs) Purity of heart is to will one thing. You can only have a single treasure in a single place. You can only have a single eye. Right? A single eye fixed on the risen and glorified Christ. Who in the midst of his sufferings, right, had his eye fixed on the glory that was set before him. So a single heavenly treasure requires a single whole focused interior vision jesus is concerned here for your wholeness the third point a single master now here it's almost as if jesus can hear our rational natural protest and i know there's probably a lot of protesting going on but what about this and what about that i mean surely we can have treasure in both places I mean, we're good at multitasking, and life is complicated, and we have lots of earthly things to do, to attend to. But in verse 24, Jesus reaffirms an absolute contrast. No one can serve two masters. He hasn't changed topics here, right? He's still talking about whether you're going to have treasure in heaven or on earth. Now, this can appear plainly false to us, right? Sometimes we work two jobs. We're able to please our bosses and handle the situation quite well. I mean, isn't there some sort of compromise position we could work out here? The word, the word Jesus uses here for serve. No one can serve two masters in verse 24. It means be a slave to. Right? So we're, we're bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that attachment to him Right? demands a kind of exclusive loyalty that can't be mixed. It can't be adulterated with another master. And notice, notice, that the masters in view here, at the end of verse 24, are two, God and money, or God and mammon. Now, it's really important to get this. Wealth or mammon is viewed by Jesus as a rival master to his kingdom. It is not correct, though it is often affirmed, to say that money is merely neutral and what you do with it matters. Again, another American proverb that Jesus never says. Put that on the list. Jesus recognizes that money has a seductive power about it, that it's competing with him to be your master. Think about that. He treats money, mammon, as a principality or a power which is seeking to master you. Do you know in Luke, he even goes so far to call it, get this, unrighteous mammon. I bet your favorite Christian financial commentator has never used the adjective unrighteous in front of money. It's as if Jesus thinks it's intrinsically unrighteous. Make friends with unrighteous mammon. And this means that we need to have a critical suspicion toward it. That we must recognize that money is not like apples. Jesus doesn't talk like this about apples or screwdrivers or flowers. Money wants to be your master. There 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 are principalities and powers attached to using it. And in this battle of God and mammon, only one can win, Jesus says. He says you're going to end up hating one. If only by neglect, you're going to end up hating one and loving the other. Or being devoted to one and despising the other. So again, he doesn't think, you know what, you can be 75% attached to me and 25% attached to your money. You're going to hate one of these masters and love the other master. Or you're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. So the love of mammon, like making mammon a master and serving it, will make you one who hates and despises God. And the text cuts both ways. And this is a point which is often overlooked as well. The love of God, following Christ as your master, means you will hate and despise money. Right? There are two masters. You're going to love one and hate one, Jesus says. The text could not be plainer about this. What does he mean that you're going to end up hating and despising money? He means you're going to recognize its power. That you're going to seek to dethrone it. To desacralize it. To profane it by giving it away. By laying hold of it and sowing heavenly treasure. And insisting that it serve the one and only master of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like you have to go to war with your own assets. Because mammon places you into a war. It forces a choice of allegiance on us. Is there any political commentator on the left or right that says anything like this, ever? Notice, you cannot serve both, Jesus says, God and man. You might try, but you cannot serve them both, just like you cannot have treasure in both places. So the text calls us to wake up to the reality that our goods and our affluence and our wealth And all of their attendant distractions compete with the kingdom of God. But we're accustomed to thinking we can have it both ways. We have all kinds of clever ways that we do this. But the text is saying, no, you can't, you can't. It's not possible. So, a kind of commitment to Christ that's partial, coupled with a partial commitment to mammon, is idolatry, Jesus thinks. So let me conclude. The the Puritan Thomas Brooks said this. He said, It is a very high point of Christian wisdom and prudence always to look upon the good things and the great things of this world as a man will certainly look upon them when he comes to die. Look upon the good things and the great things of this world. Think of your stuff, your good stuff, your highly valued stuff. Think of it now, Brooks says, as you will think of it in the hospital 20 minutes before your death. That, he says, is a high point of Christian prudence and wisdom, right? Nobody calls their grieving, weeping family members over to the bedside in their last minutes and says, Hey, Coles is having a sale this weekend. Dying saints know where their lasting treasure is. What stuff looks like in the last minutes of your earthly life is what it is. It's what it should look like to you now. If we were well persuaded, Calvin says, that our happiness was in heaven, then it would be easy to knock the world aside, to scorn earthly goods, and to ascend to heaven. He continues, Calvin says, he says, this is the mind of Paul, who, wishing to lift the faithful up to the heights and urge upon us zeal for the life of heaven, sets Christ before us. Why is Christ set before us in word and sacrament? To lift us up, to give us zeal for the life of heaven. Right? After all, that sacrament takes place in heaven itself. Lift up your hearts. So, we're back to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, raised in his glory, is himself our treasure. Right? That's, that's the reduction of this text to one sentence. Jesus Christ, raised in his heavenly splendor, is your treasure, my treasure. This is why the apostle can charge us. Here's Paul's commentary, if you will, he uses the same kind of language that Jesus uses in this gospel text that we just looked at. In Colossians 3, right, Paul says, Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Heaven or earth? It can only be one. Where is your treasure? Amen.